Let us open the Holy Scriptures together. We will read three short passages which will serve as the scriptural foundation for the instruction of question and answer 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we will consider this morning. So let's begin in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verses 28 through 32. Romans 8, 28 through 32, after which we will turn to Hebrews chapter 1. So let us hear the word of God, beginning at Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Let us now turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read together verses 1 through 6. And all of these passages note what they have to teach us about Jesus as the Son of God, the only begotten Son, God. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 6. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, This day have I begotten thee, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now finally, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. 
For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. We turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 13. Page 8 in the back of the Psalter. Question and answer which we consider is number 33. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism, that great creed of the Reformation which summarizes the cardinal truths of the Holy Scriptures, is busy leading us through some of the chief truths the Bible teaches us, specifically who Jesus is. And there's nothing more important, nothing better to give our attention to than that question, who is Jesus? That question, who is Jesus, its answer is summarized in the second article of the Apostles' Creed, and that's what the Catechism is explaining to us in this Lord's Day and in the Lord's Days before it. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. There, the second article of the Creed states a few of the primary names of our Savior. And each of those names is revelatory. It tells us something about who he is and what he has done. We've already looked at the name Jesus, and we all know the precious meaning of that name. The name Jesus means Jehovah's salvation, or Jehovah saves. That name explains to us who Jesus is to us and what he came to do for us. He is the Savior who saves us from sin and death and brings us into life everlasting with God, our Father. The name Christ is our Savior's official name. It's his title of office. It designates him as the anointed one of God who is ordained, qualified, and equipped to carry out the work revealed in the name Jesus. How does our Savior save us from our sins? By carrying out the work of the Christ, that is, our chief prophet, our only high priest, and our eternal king. Now we come to the name Son of God, or in its fuller form, only begotten Son of God. And this name is expressive of the deepest identity of our Savior Jesus Christ. It reveals to us his essential deity. That Jesus is not another creature. He is not a mere man, though he is fully human through the wonder of the incarnation, but that's not all he is. Jesus is God. Specifically, he is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God the Son. And this is crucially important. If Jesus was not God, he could not be Jesus and he could not be the Christ. As the Catechism has already instructed us in Lord's Day 6, on the basis of Scripture, in order to have a Savior who is truly able to save us from our sins, he must not only be fully man, thus qualifying him to take upon himself our sins and pay for them, but he must be fully God, having divine power to bear our sins, to sustain the wrath of God, and to deliver us from that wrath, and to impart to us the blessings that he himself merits for us. It is only because Jesus is the only begotten Son of God that he can be our Savior, that he can be Jesus. To us. <clears throat> In keeping with the Catechism's warm and personal approach, the Catechism focuses on the connection between Jesus' sonship and our sonship and daughterhood. You'll notice that in the question. The question doesn't start its explanation of these biblical truths from the top going down, but starts 
from the bottom and goes up. It starts with the realm of our experience. We know from the gospel in the scriptures and we know from our own Christian experience this wonderful reality that we are children of God. But now how does that fit with the Bible's teaching that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God? How do we fit together our identity as children of God with Jesus' identity as the only begotten Son? And the wonderful thing that this Lord's Day does is it shows us the connection between these two realities. That Jesus is the unique Son of God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And through His work on our behalf, we who by nature are children of wrath, have been made children of God through adoption on the basis of the shed blood of the incarnate, only begotten Son. And thus our sonship and our daughterhood and all of the wonderful truths contained in that reality rests upon the unshakable foundation of the only begotten and his work for us. So let's enter into the truth of the Bible as expounded and explained in question and answer 33 of the Catechism. We're going to look at the meaning of this name of Jesus, only begotten Son of God. That's our theme. Only begotten Son of God. And we will consider this theme under two points. The first is God's Son like no other. This question and answer wants to drive home this truth to us that Jesus is God's Son like no other. He is absolutely unique. But secondly, this Jesus, who is God's Son like no other, has become, by the wonderful grace of God, the firstborn among many brethren. The name only begotten Son of God reveals both the deity, that is the divinity, the Godhead of Jesus Christ, and the entirely unique nature of the Sonship of Christ. And so those are the two truths of the Bible that we explore now in the first point. Jesus Christ is God's Son like no other. The Bible passages that we read this morning have emphasized that to us. The name Son of God, or its longer form, Only Begotten Son of God, teach both Jesus' divinity and his unique relationship to God the Father. Now, at the onset, let's notice that the Bible does use the name Son of God in a few different ways. In a certain sense, the Bible speaks of all creation as the offspring of God. For example, in Acts 17, verse 19, Paul speaks of the human race as the offspring of God. And in that sense, the Bible is not teaching that all creation or that all humankind enjoys a special father child relationship with God, but rather, Paul is setting forth there the doctrine that God is creator. We looked at that in Lord's Day 9. God is the father of creation. And the emphasis there is that God is the one who gave created things their being, their existence. Creation is the offspring of God in that creation was created and given being by God. Job 38 verse 7 calls the angels sons of God. Where it says, the sons of God shouted for joy, referring, it seems, to the angels rejoicing as they beheld the creative acts of God in the latter days of the creation week. There the angels are called the sons of God because they received their being from God and also as his glorious spiritual ministers, they reflect something of the beauty and glory of God. Most wonderfully, The Bible applies the name Son of God, and contained in that is Daughter of God as well, Child of God, to believers, God's elect people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and given the gift of faith through the operation of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. These are the children of God. And this is the most wonderful use of this name for us because it denotes who we are by grace. We have been made children of God. 
And now in a special way, when the Bible refers to believers as the children of God, it's not talking about the creator-creature relationship, but it's talking about the special covenant relationship of love and friendship that God has established with us through Jesus Christ. So that he has become our father who loves us with a sovereign and saving love. And he has taken us to be his own children and the heirs of his inheritance who will live and dwell in his house forever. We are children of God. But now at the center, we we can envision it in our mind as concentric circles. You have the Bible speaking of creation as the offspring of God. That's the widest circle. You have children of God, that is, elect believers. But now at the very dead center of that circle is Christ, who is the Son of God. The only begotten Son of God. And that name, Son of God, only begotten Son of God, as applied to Jesus Christ, denotes a higher and unique, indeed entirely unique sonship, That Jesus has. Jesus is God's son like no other. A perusal of scripture makes this abundantly clear. Just want to look at a few New Testament passages in the Gospels. Where this name son of God is applied to Jesus. Matthew 3 verse 17 comes to mind. Jesus' baptism, and you remember what happened after Jesus came out of the waters of the Jordan. The heavens opened and God the Father spoke and this is what he said. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now God wasn't saying there that this is the only Son or the only child that I have. But when he pointed out Jesus and said, this is my beloved son, he was identifying Jesus as his son in an entirely unique sense. This is my only begotten son. My son who is unlike any other. My son like no other. Or you go on to the next chapter of Matthew where the devil says, Satan says in Matthew 4, verse 3, If thou be the Son of God, not a, but the Son of God, there Satan himself reveals an understanding that Jesus is God's Son like no other. Uniquely. Peter, in Matthew 16, verse 16, confesses, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. At the heart of that confession of saving faith, which Jesus, in the next verse, identifies as having its origin in the work of God in Peter's heart. At the center of that confession of saving faith that Peter vocalized there in Matthew 16, verse 16, is this truth, that Jesus is the Son of God. Like no other. Uniquely. Then in the Gospel of John, and in the book of 1 John, you have five occurrences of the longer form of this name, only begotten Son of God. Only begotten Son of God. For example, in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And this this text expresses so clearly that unique sonship that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. He is the only begotten Son who has eternally been in the bosom of the Father, describing the closest fellowship and intimacy and oneness Between God the Son and God the Father. And God the Son, the only begotten Son, is the Word made flesh. He is the revelation of the Father. He has declared, that is revealed God to us. Then you think of John 3.16, that very well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting 
life. Bible teaches Jesus is God's son like no other. But now, let's get a little more specific. In what ways is Jesus God's son like no other? In what ways is his sonship entirely unique and different from our sonship and our daughterhood? What makes Jesus' sonship so much higher than ours? Entirely unique. And that's where question and answer 33 comes in. Answer 33 in the first line draws from scripture and sets before us two of the main things that set Jesus' sonship apart from ours. Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. And that's really the meaning of the name only begotten Son of God. That name designates Jesus as the eternal and the natural Son of God. And no one else can claim to be that. So let's quickly go through those two things that the Catechism points out to us so that we understand clearly what they mean. First, Jesus, in distinction from every other, is the eternal Son of God. Eternal. We know what eternal means. Eternal doesn't just mean that you have endless time. One who is eternal does not inhabit time. One who is eternal is not bound by time. One who is eternal is above time. And the only eternal one is God. God created time. Time is as much God's creature as any part of this world. God is not bound by time. There is not a a succession of moments in his divine life. He is the eternal I am. Jesus is the eternal son of God. That means Jesus always has been is and ever will be God's son, unchangeably, everlastingly. Jesus is not a creature. He was not created. There was not a moment in time when his sonship came into being because he himself never came into being. And he himself is God the son. His sonship is eternal. That is who he is from everlasting to everlasting. That refutes so many Mutations of ancient heresy that sometimes surface in modern Christianity today. Jesus was not someone who was adopted to be God's son. Jesus was not a creature, even the greatest of God's creatures, that God at some point chose to make a special son out of. Jesus is the eternal son of God. This is who he is, without beginning, without end. Jesus' sonship is as eternal as the Father's fatherhood is eternal. You go back to John 1 verse 18 and you see that. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father. Which is in the bosom of the Father. Eternally. Eternally. And so here we see an essential difference between Jesus' sonship and ours. We are creatures. Jesus is not. We have been made. Jesus is uncreated. We are time-bound. Jesus is eternal. We have a beginning. Jesus is without beginning. He is the eternal Son. Our sonship, our daughterhood, has its genesis in time by an act of God. Jesus was not brought into being by an act of God. He is God who has brought all things into being. Now in the second place, the name only begotten Son of God means that Jesus is the natural Son of God. That word natural is a word that can bear many different meanings. But here in the catechism, the precise meaning of natural is having the same essence, sharing the same nature. The idea of the catechism is that Jesus is the Son of God who shares the same nature as the Father. To put it very simply, Jesus is just as much God as the Father is. He shares the one divine essence, which is the one God. 
That means everything that belongs to God, Jesus possesses. All of the divine attributes that belong to the Godhead, Jesus possesses. He is God. He has the one, same essence as God the Father, God the Spirit. And thus, our Reformed creeds in Reliance upon the ancient creeds of the church use the theological term co-essential and co-equal. Co-essential means of one essence. Co-equal means entirely equal in every respect. Jesus, God the Son, shares the one divine essence with the Father. And that means they're equally God. There's no subordination within the Godhead. And there's a difference between father-son relationships, father-child relationships in and among us as human beings. There is authority and subordination among a father and a child. But not so within God. They are co-essential, therefore co-equal. Hebrews 1, verse 3, one of the passages we read this morning, is one of many Bible passages that shows us this important truth. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this of Jesus, the Son. Who being the brightness of His, that is, the Father's glory, and the express image of His person. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. God's glory is the radiance, the shining forth of His infinite perfections. That Hebrews 1 verse 3 says Jesus is the brightness of his glory. Teaches us that Jesus is God. He is the glory of God. He is the revelation of God. He shines, he glows with the infinite perfections of God. Not as a mirror, but as the radiance itself. That's why the ancient creed, the Nicene Creed, Describes Jesus this way, and it's so beautiful. It's not only poetic, but it is deep, rich, biblical theology. When the Nicene Creed says of Jesus that he is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one essence with the Father. That beautiful statement of the Nicene Creed encapsulates the essence of the Christian faith. That is who Jesus is. He is God. God the Son. God's Son like no other. The eternal, natural, only begotten Son of God. That's also the idea of Romans 8 verse 32. Where the scriptures say that God spared not his own Son. And that word own there designates Jesus as unique, as God's own Son in a unique way, His own, because Jesus shares God's own being. Natural Son of God. Marvelous truth, isn't it? Deep truth, rich truth, deep theology, This name gives us a window into the intra-Trinitarian life of the one true God and lets us catch a glimpse of things that are too wonderful for human words and concepts to fully describe. And that's why, perhaps as we're listening to the explanation of this question and answer, we're finding ourselves struggling to understand some of these things. And that's normal because none of us can fully understand it. These are the deep things of God. We should not be surprised that we run up against the wall of our human limitations. When we run up against that wall, now bow and worship and behold God for who He is. The wonder of His being. The glory of who He is. He is the one who is worthy of worship. One only true and living God. Yet that one God is three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God the Son, according to the ordination, 
given him an eternity, came in the fullness of time and assumed our flesh to become one of us, as Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 teaches us, so that he might save us from our sins. Wonderful. Wonderful truth. Wonderful truth that is practical and important for this reason also. Is that this unique sonship of Jesus Christ. And the unique relationship of God the Son to God the Father. Within the being and life of the one true God. This is not abstract theology, but it is warm theology because it shows us who God is in himself. God is not an abstract principle. He is not an impersonal power or force that simply mindlessly operates according to some self-determination or some law in himself. But the one true God is a living God. And at the core of the divine life is fellowship, love, and intimacy. That's who God is. And that's what God is about. And that means that all of God's works for us and in us have that as their great aim. He is a God of fellowship who draws his people into his fellowship. And who delights to bless his people by giving them a taste of his own divine life. And that's why salvation so often in the Bible is described in family terms as God the Father making his people his children. Not an abstract power overcoming us such that we succumb to it. Not some force in the universe that we submit to and worship and hope will bless us. But a personal God. A God who is a personal God within himself. Who draws us into his fellowship. Through his only begotten son. Who he has given and sent. To be the firstborn among many brethren. And that's the second point. Jesus is the son of God like no other. But he is not the only. Son of God. The God of fellowship has eternally purposed to glorify himself by making his only begotten Son, the entirely unique Son, the only eternal and natural Son, the firstborn among many brethren, the firstborn who comes into the world, as Hebrews 2 sets before us, and coming into the world gathers around himself brethren, whom he is not ashamed to call his brethren. The wonderful plan of God is to send his only begotten son into the world to assume our flesh, that in our flesh he might become the captain of salvation who brings many sons and daughters to glory. To glory, to share that glory and that joy, that blessed life of God himself. Romans 8 verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. That he, and the he there is Jesus, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. As an aside... You understand predestination in these terms. You see what a warm doctrine it is. Predestination is not a cold, hard, abstract theologizing. But it is a warm, warm truth of the scriptures. Predestination is the eternal foreordination of the Father. The eternal foreordination of those he will have to be his sons and daughters. Through the work of his only begotten son. It's the eternal foreordination of God. Choosing who he will adopt into his family. God brings forth. And God gathers for his glory. 
many children, many sons, many daughters through the work of his only begotten son. That's salvation. It's God the Father building his family. The family of heaven and earth. The family that is the covenant of grace. Of which Christ is the head. The elder brother. And in which we are the younger brothers and sisters. Loved of a father. Think about that. How wonderful that makes salvation. What a wonderful way to think about it. Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. Another way to put it is this. The only begotten son came into our flesh, came into our world. To save us from our sins. To take us children of wrath, children of disobedience, spiritual image bearers of the devil. And turn us into children of God. Heirs of life everlasting. Joint heirs with Christ. And conform us to the image of the only begotten son himself. That we might reflect something of the beauty and glory of him who is the brightness of the father's glory. Something of him who is light of light. God of God. Jesus came to make us children of God. And that gets us to the the second part of answer 33. Answer 33 sets before us Jesus Christ, God's Son like no other. He is God's Son like no other because He is the only eternal and natural Son. But now, remember where the question 33 began. It began with that reality that we know from the scriptures and experience by faith. We are children of God. How? How? We are children of God, adopted of God, by grace for his, that is for Jesus' sake. By grace, through the work of the firstborn, We are made children of God. So now for a few minutes I want to explore that idea of the firstborn. Jesus was ordained and sent into the world to be the firstborn among many brethren, as Romans 8.29 teaches us. What's the significance of that idea of firstborn? One thing we want to understand is that in the Bible, the emphasis of the word firstborn is a little different than the emphasis that we have when we use the term. When we speak of our firstborn, the emphasis is upon birth order. When we say, my firstborn child, we're talking about the one who is born first. And while that idea is in the scriptures, there is a different emphasis. In the Old Testament, Firstborn, though the firstborn was often the first in birth order, firstborn was also a legal position. And the emphasis is upon a certain position, a certain office, that that individual held in the family. The firstborn had a position of preeminence. The firstborn had a position of rule over the rest of his brethren. The firstborn was the one who would take over headship of the family after the father's passing. The firstborn received a double portion of the father's inheritance. The firstborn was viewed as the one who made way for the rest of his brethren. And that's why in the Old Testament, the firstborns were consecrated unto God. The firstborn opened the womb and made the way for his brethren. And now, All of those Old Testament ideas you see Jesus fulfills. Yes, Jesus is first, temporally speaking. As Colossians 1 verse 17 says, He is before all things, and by him all things consist. As the eternal Son of God, of course he's first in that respect. He's above and beyond time according to his divine nature. But when the scriptures say that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren, it is especially highlighting this truth. 
Jesus was appointed by the Father to occupy a special position in relationship to us. A special family position. He was appointed to occupy a position of rule, a position of care for us. He was appointed as the heir of the Father's inheritance. He is consecrated to the Father, and he is the one who, through his work, opens the way for the rest of us to the Father and into the kingdom of heaven. He is the firstborn. And because he is the firstborn, there may be other children of God. And because of the work of the firstborn, the way is opened for many sons and daughters to be led to glory. To be the firstborn among many brethren, the only begotten son had to become human. And that's the wonder of the incarnation. The incarnation is the miracle of God whereby the only begotten Son, God the Son, assumed our flesh, took our human nature, and became truly and fully man, united that human nature with his divine nature such that Jesus is fully God, fully human, one person, God the Son, the only begotten, now in our flesh. As Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, also himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. Jesus took upon himself our flesh, that he might take upon himself our sin, that he might bear our sin, that he might pay for our sin, atoning for it, that he might... Obtain for us life everlasting and impart that gift to us. Jesus, as our elder brother, took responsibility for us. There's part of that firstborn idea. The firstborn in the Old Testament took responsibility for the family. He had the rule and he had the responsibility to care for the family. That's Jesus. He took responsibility for us in the most wonderful way as our elder brother. He took our sins. Though he had no sin of his own. He took our sins and the guilt of our sins. And stood before God as responsible for them. And bore the punishment in our place to deliver us from it. And as the firstborn who took responsibility for us. He has opened up the way. Opened up the gate to heaven. In fact, he himself is that way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The new and living way into the house of the Father. Thus, through Jesus' saving work, he has redeemed us to be his own. Go back to Lord's Day 1 and you see the connection here to our only comfort in life and in death. This is the essence of the Christian comfort that Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, is become the firstborn among many brethren. He took responsibility for me and he redeemed me with his precious blood so that now I am not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And because I belong to him, And because he is my elder brother, I share the same father as my elder brother. God has become my father. I am his child. Adoption, as the catechism says. Adoption. What a wonderful truth that sometimes doesn't get due treatment. In our explanation of the scriptures. Adoption. Adoption is when, when parents take a child who is not their natural child, not a child they begat or gave birth to, they take that child into their family, and that child becomes as much their child as their natural children. Adoption is a wonderful thing. And adoption, even among Christian parents, should be something we see as wonderful because in a unique way, it reflects what God has done with us. By nature, we're children of wrath. 
We're not God's natural children. And yet, on the basis of what the natural Son of God, Jesus Christ, has done, we have been adopted sons and daughters. God has taken us to be His children. And in adoption, He confers upon us that legal status as children of God. We are His. And as His children adopted, we now have the rights and the privileges of children. All of that on the basis of the work of the firstborn. The work of the firstborn which redeems many brethren. The work of the firstborn which is the legal foundation for our adoption into the family of God. Our adoption papers, as it has often been said and beautifully said, those papers are signed in the blood of Christ. There's something more to this adoption to be children of God, this spiritual adoption. The firstborn has obtained many gifts for his brethren, and one of those gifts is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the spirit of our elder brother who dwells in us, works in us to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, so that in God's spiritual adoption of us, something happens that doesn't happen in any other adoption. We start to look like our father. We start to look like our elder brother. Yes, when a child is adopted into a new home, that child will take on the customs, the manners, the personality of the family into which he or she is adopted. But something much more happens when God brings us into his family. He gets to work inside of us, as Romans 8.29 says, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. He spiritually refashions us. We become a workmanship of grace. So that more and more we are conformed to his image. We are refashioned in true righteousness, holiness, and the knowledge of the living God. There is a spiritual transformation that takes place. There is a new spiritual birth that takes place. We receive new life. New spiritual graces are worked in us. And we as God's people, God's children, become new Creatures in Christ with new spiritual traits and characteristics like our elder brother, Jesus Christ. It's the wonder of salvation. Salvation is a transformative work that renews us more and more until that day when the work begun in us is finished, the day of Christ. And so we see then that Jesus being the firstborn among many brethren and we being adopted by grace for his sake confers upon us so many privileges as well as a high calling. And that's where we end. Our privileges, which we are to cherish, and our high calling that consequently we are to take seriously and delight to fulfill. Foremost among our privileges is simply this, that we have been brought into a relationship of love and friendship with our adoptive Father, our God. A verse that expresses this so very beautifully is 1 John 3, verse 1. Just think about what these words mean for you, believer. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. That's the love of God bestowed on us. He's adopted us, taken us out of misery. It's not just that we were orphans in an orphanage, but we were children of wrath, lost in the darkness of this world, on the pathway towards perishing everlastingly. And God, through Jesus Christ, made us his children. What a privilege! What rights and privileges we have now to call upon the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the Holy One, before whom seraphim veil their eyes, and to come to him and say, Father, what privileges? To come to him seeking his blessing, his help, his aid, his comfort at any time. Privileges. And this God, 
who bestowed such love upon us, He deals with us as children in His love. Even when He chastens us, as Hebrews 12 says, it's in His love. We're His children. And thus Romans 8.28, all things must work together for good to them that love God who are the called according to His purpose. God is the perfect Father. He deals with you as children. Remember that when you're struggling. Remember that when you're suffering. Remember that when your earthly way is hard and you don't understand what God is doing in your life. He's your Father. And that never changes. He's your Father for the sake of the work of your elder brother, Jesus Christ. And as such, you have a portion of the inheritance. The eternal inheritance of Jesus Christ, your elder brother, who obtained that inheritance through his meritorious work. But Jesus doesn't keep it to himself. He obtained it that he might share it with all of his brethren, sons and daughters that he leads to glory. All things are yours. Romans 8.32, that rhetorical question It leaves the answer unstated because it doesn't need to be stated. It's self-evident. For if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? That's the inheritance of the child of God. Privileges. Having those privileges as adopted children, let's live like children of God. Let's be what we've been made to be, part of the family of God. Let's follow our elder brother. Let's obey our father. Let's glorify him. Let's not live like the children of the world. Let's see the kind of life that the world lives for what it is. We don't want that anymore. We have a new life. A new kind of life, a new language, new habits, new thinking, new ways of acting, and how blessed it is. Let us live as children of God for the glory of God. That we may show ourselves to be brethren of the firstborn and children of the living God. Bearing witness in this world to who he is and what he has done that men may praise him. And submit themselves to Jesus Christ. The only begotten son. Of God. Amen. Faithful God and heavenly father. We thank thee for this truth. Press it upon our hearts. That for the sake. Of Jesus the firstborn. We are thy children and heirs. Grant that our joy may be full as we enjoy the privileges that are ours through adoption into thy family. And may we take seriously and joyfully carry out our calling to live like children of God for the glory of our elder brother, our Savior, and of thee, our Father. Amen.